You're listening to The Spindle on Wednesday. Hello everybody, it's The Spindle Podcast with Mark and John. Welcome to The Spindle, a podcast about 7-inch records. I'm Mark. I'm John. And in each episode, we talk about one seven-inch record, hopefully give you some insight into it that you haven't heard before. We both got into music in the 80s and 90s, when seven inches were super important, especially on independent labels. So that's the era we mostly draw from, but we sometimes pick some stuff earlier or later than that, too. And either way, we try to keep it short and to the point, just like seven inches do. On this episode, we are going to talk about the clean seven-inch tally-ho backed with platypus, Released in September of 1981 on Flying Nun Records in New Zealand. Tally Ho, the A-side, was recorded at Night Shift Studio in Christchurch, New Zealand on July 6th, I think, of 1981. And the B-side, Platypus, was recorded live at a place called the Gladstone in Christchurch on the 4th of July, just a couple days before. Actually recorded uh, on a reel-to-reel by Paul Keane, who was in the New Zealand band Toy Love. I think he recorded the whole show and they went through it to pick out a song for the B-side. Uh, the lineup of The Clean at the time was uh, David Kilgore, guitar, vocals, Robert Scott on bass, Hamish Kilgore on drums and vocals. And on Tally Ho, I think Martin Phillips from The Chills plays some keyboards, too. It says Buzz. Oh, it says Buzz? on. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess that must be Martin Phillips. So uh, both the songs were written by the band collectively, I think. And uh, it went to number 23 on the New Zealand charts when it first came out. And it actually got into the top 20 and like sold enough copies to almost be what was considered gold in New Zealand at the time, which I yeah, think they had a string like, of they had a little bit of a string of hits there. Yeah, totally. In New Zealand yeah. before yeah. they broke up. Yeah. yeah. Which I think comes to something like, you know, six or seven thousand copies of it over time. And, <laughs> It's yeah, pretty that good. That was when so. the fall, the fall got into the top ten or twenty in New Zealand at that <laughs> That's point. Right. With like uh-huh. my dream or something like that. Uh-huh. My dream nice. of Casino Soul. Yeah. And um it's the first release on Flying Nun, even though it's Flying Nun catalog number two. There's a pin group record that was number one, but it came out after. Yes, I'm getting all this information from uh there's this great new book by the by Matthew Goody called Needles and Plastic which is like a history of the first seven years of Flying Nun. It, it has a big detailed story on every release during that time. Um, so just <laughs> I want to give a little thanks to Matthew Goody for writing that book because it's pretty amazing and there's a lot of great information in it. But beyond just information, what can we say astutely about Tally Ho and Platypus? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I've always read just as a buzz, although I guess it, it's not hugely shocking. It might be Mark Phillips on keyboards because mm-hmm. to me it sounds of the two songs it it sounds the least clean like it's one mm-hmm. of the less clean light songs in some ways in their catalog to me it does sound more like a chill song uh with that huge upfront melody and that organ right. you know playing away and that weird it's kind of garagey but kind of not you know kind of thing very so i mean it's a great song so catchy so much fun to listen to I mean, once heard, never forgot. Totally. Yeah, that, that beginning lick is just crazy.
it says in the book that, that he, Martin Phillips actually overdubbed keyboards, which makes me think that maybe he didn't play the main line. Maybe he added some of the chords because I can't imagine. Them no, no recording. he probably came in later and added threw them over the top. Yeah, that could have been because there's no way they play they played without it. I, I can't yeah, imagine. There's not a bunch that. of no. In fact, now that con that makes sense to me now that I hear. Yeah, them, like now that I'm like because uh-huh. you know, the keyboard kind of dominates. The, oh, yeah. The mix. Oh, totally. Yep. So it it almost buries everything. Like the vocals, I yeah. think, are competing with the keyboard. It's so, not necessarily louder than everything, but it's kind of so much more prominent than the rest of the song. It's louder than everything. It's just louder than everything, but that's okay. That's what makes it great. <laughs> yeah. you know? Right, totally. Unbalanced mixes are really cool. Like everybody sometimes thinks you need these great natural mixes where the band sounds like the band. But this doesn't, this would be not as great a record without that keyboard just right in your face and right uh, it kind of buries the band but that means that the band kind of becomes its own sort of thing underneath chugging away i I don't know i think it works really well in this case yeah i think so too it's interesting another another story from that book is that uh so apparently there was they were jamming at some point either rehearsal or studio or something and Robert Scott who was the bass player at the time they're jamming on this the, the a line that's similar to the line in Tally Ho and he just started playing improvising on keyboards and then when he came up with that keyboard line they're like okay we got to make a song out of that. The interesting thing to me about that story is that that from the very beginning they were kind of a they had some improvisation happening in the way their songs happened even though their songs could be kind of you know pretty tightly melodic Every, everything always felt, feels kind of loose with them in a way that they, you feel like they could play each, each one of their songs for like a half hour if they wanted to. They do sometimes. Yeah. I mean, like, you <laughs> yeah. know, they, they, I love that about them. Yeah, the songs seem to kind of just arise. They're one of those bands that they don't, none of their songs seems to have an actual beginning. I mean, I, and maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but no, it really is that way. Like the guitar could start or the drums could start or the bass could start. There's not like there's intros or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of fires up, trundles along. They get it going until everybody's got the riff going and then we'll start singing. And then the songs kind of disappear, tail off, especially live. Like, yeah, I got obsessed with listening to bootlegs for them for a while. And, uh, yeah, they just kind of like play until every member has gotten completely bored of the song and then they stop sometimes, you yeah. know, and, and, yeah. uh, it's kind of cool. It's very organic sounding. Like you can tell these are people who just played together. Like they just take that onto the stage probably because they know that's the most effective way to play for them. One time I saw them, they had a song that just completely dissipated to the point where like whoever decided to stop last would ended the song. And I think Dave, David was like, you know, that's kind of how all our songs end. Just so you know, <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if it's an issue for you, I just want to warn you, <laughs> this is going to happen every time. You know, <laughs> the thing is for them, it's more like it builds up. And then so that by the time they're midway through the song, there's all this momentum they've got going. It's sort of carried. It's, it's sort of gone from this, very sketchy beginning to this full throttle groove that they get into that can, like you're saying, it could go for a half an hour, it could go for three minutes, who knows? And I think it's part of the reason why the the song on the, on the B side doesn't really sound that different from the, I mean, it sounds different. It's a different song, different kind of song with the structure and everything, but in terms of like, it's recorded live, but because they recorded the, the A side in a cheap studio, the quality isn't that much different. And it also has kind of a, a little bit of a jammy quality to it. Yeah, I, well, and, and as I was saying, I think that's the more ultimately when you look at their body balance, their work, that's the way more cleany song because a lot of it is getting into those one, two chord drones. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't even call them vamps necessarily. I, they seem to have developed at the same time as the feelies. And the, I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of connection there as far as the things that they're exploring with guitar jamming. They've just chosen, you know, the feelies are kind of a more tightly wound version of that um, investigating chords, basically. And uh, I remember another quote I read somewhere that one of the members of the clean was like when they heard the first PIL record, they felt like, oh, yeah, this is kind of where we are. Okay, somebody else is doing this. And um, I love Platypus. That's one of my favorite clean songs. I think that. Yeah, it's a great song. It's interesting that that song because for me that my introduction to them was when homestead over here in america uh put the compilation compilation yeah uh, album just called compilation which was like uh sort of a greatest hits up to then kind of point it wasn't a it wasn't a complete collection of what they'd done because platypus wasn't on it and i didn't hear platypus till a long time later i mean it totally fit and i I loved it right away but it's interesting that that that's the one they chose to put on the B-side, but then didn't really make it <laughs> across for a while. I know, it's crazy. The whole New Zealand thing was kind of, it sort of popped up here in the U.S. Like there's, I really don't think there was any chance of U.S. people really hearing the clean. To me, that was something that was established in the mid-80s. I remember Jean-Paul Sartre experience popping up, like maybe being one of the really early New Zealand bands that were on the radar Verlaine's chills clean kind of came along all that stuff happened pretty simultaneously i mean Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure somebody's cool enough to have been able to get their hands on new zealand records but i don't know and then it was cool because then you could then you the flying nun records started coming over at that point on their own yeah and i'm not sure i'd be interested to look back at the chronology of of the of their issues by homestead and other labels here because i don't know that it went in the same pattern i mean the pattern of flying nun was the clean had a couple records out before any of these other bands did on flying nun yeah and so they they were sort of established as they're like the flagship band of the label and they kind of defined the label right away I don't know that the, the clean stuff got over here that much faster than other band stuff, but I personally, the minute I heard it was like, okay, this is the best possible oh, thing happening yeah, over there. So doesn't mean that I, I mean, there's so many other great bands. I love a lot of them. Well, I mean, I want to say maybe the Verlaines were mm-hmm. like, I, it took to me though, like maybe Homestead seemed to do all of this at the same time. Like yep. they obviously yep. did something with flying nun 
Mm-hmm. You know, and so all these bands kind of hit at once. And I remember having pretty big impact. Like when we were talking about the pavement seven inch, we talked about the swell maps. This New Zealand stuff, I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, it just obviously everybody was just captivated by it. And, you know, that weird mix of lo fi, hi fi, because they're, they're kind of DIY, but all the records sound really good. Like yeah. those uh-huh. records they're making on Chris Knox's four track are not lo fi in any way, shape, or form. You know, those are. Those all those twelve dwarfs albums sound amazing, you know. And same with the clean things that he was involved with too. Always sound really good, really good. And and they know they all sort of have a, an innate sense of how to make it sound good, but keep the right parts raw enough and loose enough, and not you know there's not not a ton of polish. I mean, once the chills got on a major label hill, they they got a little bit more polished. But even they always had points where it felt loose enough that you were getting sort of. You know, the, you weren't you weren't too far removed from the initial impulse of each song. Well, and I'd say for the chills, it was always embedded in them. They were always slightly more complex in that way, anyway. Right. So when mm-hmm. they did kind of add a little bit more, it it made sense, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, like with the clean kind of did some like they're smart enough not to mess with the formula too much, but like getting older has like trumpets on it and stuff like that. Right. And True. Uh, they definitely expanded the sound. Like, I mean, Hey, they added a keyboard right off the bat, their first single, oh, right. Right. You know, which wasn't really part of their stage setup or anything like that. It is cool. How it is a little anomalous, uh, but I guess they had, I was reading, they had a couple other hits like beatnik was a bit of a hit and um, that their records were actively selling in New mm-hmm. Zealand before they, yeah. and then they just evaporated like in 82 or 83. Like what, why did they break up? I don't know. Like, but did they even, cause they kind of just morphed into the great unwashed. Right. Right. And Hamish got involved in Belter space pretty early yeah. there too. Belter um, space. Yeah. Belter space a great band as well. Um, oh yeah. Fabulous. Well, that's another funny thing about my experience with them too, is that, you know, they, they broke it up for a while and they have this comeback record vehicle, which is an amazing album, but that, that timeline's compressed over here because the homestead reissues and vehicle right. were not that far apart from each other. So it, it didn't seem like a comeback. I was just like, Oh, they have a new album. And then I find out, Oh, there's like six or seven years between these. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, they, I you know. mean, they, they didn't, they didn't even do an album. Like they did like an, an EP, two singles and some live like recordings mm-hmm. basically right 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 it's the essential discography and i mean i love their later records so don't get me wrong but it's like we were talking about teenage jesus and the jerks in the last podcast i mean this is another body of work that's extremely like an anthology it's just the first lp basically right. uh-huh. and, and yep. i that's it's in, they, you know with that small amount of of stuff the impact they had it's pretty impressive mm-hmm. It is because they they were brought back because of the impact. Like when people first heard that stuff in the U.S., they were like, "What the, what the hell?" Right. You you sort of feel deprived. Right. Absolutely. It's wild. I mean, this has been said a lot by anybody who's into any New Zealand stuff, but it's wild for such a small country to produce as many good bands right around that time. You know, there's so much of that at that time. Like it's it's like there's the Saints in Australia. You know, the split ends were already going and i mean i know they're a little artier but and it definitely seems to be i mean at least when we're talking specifically about this kind of music the british empire is what you're talking about and so in reality we were like oh new zealand it's all the way on the other side of the globe 
Well, no, it's they're just buying British records. They're, you can hear that they're listening to all of the British bands, and this is their reaction to that. And they're reacting just like here in the U.S. We were reacting. They're, they're, it's all the same. That's not, I mean, the cleaner monsters, you know, they're the freaking, they're freaking great. And they they deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as the Saints and as the Ramones. Well, I mean, they're, maybe they're not as early as that, but <laughs> right, you know right. what I'm saying? And sure, so sure. It, they're, they're definitely a response to the same stuff that we're all responding to. Right. And they, I mean, they're definitely record collector-ish dudes, especially Hamish. Yeah. They're, you know, yeah. They, 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 you know, they, they weren't the kind of people that were trying to pretend that they sprung out of nowhere. I mean, they, they're very cognizant and uh, appreciative of their influences for sure. Yeah, I mean they're a post they're like an early post punk band, I would say is and it's that's a big chunk of their early career, which is obviously kind of important, especially in New Zealand. Uh of course they went unrecorded entirely. Right. Like I don't think there's any recordings of them with Peter Gutteridge, and he was in the band for like a year and a half, two years. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Yeah. Like yeah. they didn't record till he split. So that's a whole subsumed history of them. Like the, the right. singly sort of stuff that we know is just the tip of the iceberg. And there, there's definitely a big dichotomy always with them uh, as organic and weird as their studio sounds are. Uh, the live thing is a, always a completely different thing. Totally. Than what you hear in the studio with them, which sometimes could be pastoral, you know, and whereas live, they almost always are like, they will crank it up quite a bit i always like bands that do that like i don't like when people don't try to make themselves sound like the record so i'm a big fan of that so it's interesting with tally ho with the lyrics of this one they're kind of um they're sort of not vague but they're kind of they're kind of abstract and there's a good story from the the book about about part of the lyrics so i'm going to read part of this here the completed lyrics were inspired by an experience david had when the clean played the reverb room in, in may 1981 he took a strong dose of psycho psychedelic dma before going on stage and spent the next few days on a rough trip that left him in an extended haze when the band arrived in christchurch only hours before they do the studio he worked his near breakdown into the final lyrics with some help from martin phillips so part of this song is supposed to be about when he was basically tripping his brain off which i think works <laughs> yeah, now, oh, that yeah. I know, now that i know that it makes it makes sense in a lot of what he's singing about and stuff well and, and it's an interesting connection because we haven't really mentioned but that one of the people that they are plainly very inspired by is sid barrett it seems right to me. like there's a very yeah. barrett-esque quality to mm-hmm. a lot of what they're doing but their psychedelia is so interesting because one of the things about uh sid barrett and early pink floyd is they're from cambridge rather than london which is a very different vibe it's considered to be the country and so there's lots of, you know, they, they hang out in fields by streams and stuff like that. And so their psychedelia is different than that London and everything's flashing kind of psychedelia. It's this more mellow, uh-huh. you know, thoughtful, like, yeah, man, I had a bad trip. It was wild, you know, <laughs> right, right. a lot from bad trips kind of thing, which is true. And so... Uh, it's just this kind of an interesting take on the psychedelic thing, which also I think gives them a little different vibe, you know, mm-hmm. because um, they that also would connect them maybe to television personalities and some bands like that uh, that also were doing that side of psychedelia rather than a lot of punk bands were exploring sort of the harder, more garage side of it, like The Fall or The Damned or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there always did seem to be sort of a like, I don't know if it's like a, a drift to what they were doing or a, a kind of not really like a floatingness, but like 
maybe it was just sort of Kilgore's way of singing both him and both the brothers that gave it sort of this uh airy kind of floating oh well folky right to, like yeah, maybe they're, yeah. they're like folky kind of stuff maybe early t-rexy kind of yeah yeah that's a good incredible string band maybe folks mm, mm-hmm, sure. i don't know yeah. uh they yeah. do have that especially the later albums there is that kind of string trippy string bandy kind of stuff they do where it's everybody on acoustic instruments and now that you say you know they're taking psychedelics i didn't know that for sure but yeah oh yeah i mean that's a big part of the music obviously is trying to replicate the psychedelic experience through that kind of repetition and uh you know trying to get lost inside the riff totally um maybe we should talk a little bit about hamish who passed away unfortunately a few weeks ago he was actually sort of the singer when they started um i think gutteridge sang some but there were points when when hey there was a version of them where he was like standing in front without an instrument singing the songs <laughs> i did not know that yeah That's yeah and, and he ends up singing on on some songs later even when he's drumming they usually sings a couple songs on the record on each of the records yeah just a sort of a amazingly creative dude and he you he know he's a very he's, cool drummer he he's uh like a big part of what gives them their voice and kind of the consistency of their sound is that sh- kind of shuffly beat that he plays on almost everything, but he has these little variations he'll do on it, but it's almost always this weird shuffle. And he plays, I think left he's lefty, but he plays on a right-handed kit, which means you use your left hand on the hi-hat and your right-handed snare, which if you're not a drummer, it may not make sense, but it is kind of a weird way to approach it which isn't wrong but it would give you sort of in a different approach to the rhythms that you would do or could do um and how you go around the kit when you play and so it kind of makes music sound a particular way and he almost took advantage of that i think to use it as a limitation that uh, is actually a signature you know a fingerprint on the music i love also they would add a lot of percussion and stuff like that around that that shuffle beat all the time and he's not really like a phil's guy like he's no. <laughs> he's you know he's it's all kind of kind of straight in in straightforward in 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 terms of the general structure but then like you say shuffling there's almost like a little like deliberate slippage in and how he plays sort of yeah um, he's well and it, it uh i would say another big beat he relies on is the surf beat the boom boom bap, bap, boom boom bap, bap, boom 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 and that's and i think it's obviously he likes mo tucker so that gives him a kind of grounds it in a in a way in a good way there's not a shit ton to say about it because i think he's involved mm-hmm. a lot in the songwriting and stuff like that they aren't this super complicated band where he's good like you're saying he's going to be signaling changes or doing fills you know it's all about just getting that groove going stick in the groove and when the knowing when the groove is over and he and his brother had a very distinctive swing together because they'd obviously played together so much it gave them a casual tightness that just comes from knowing what the other person is going to do rather than a million rehearsals or worked out arrangements. It's just a brainwave thing. Yeah. I was watching uh, some interviews with him after he passed and there was one where he said, there's this great quote, often in simplicity, you find magic things. You look for this magic spot where the beats sit, which I think is kind of perfect because like, it's not like his beats are some kind of jazzy things or some kind of odd time signatures or anything but he still was really cognizant of like, there's a sort of a magic place inside of these one, two beats. The, I don't know the best way to put it. There's something unique about finding that spot. 
That's right. The minimalism, I mean, I, I, we've talked, like minimalism a little bit is about that moment of the drone, because even though it's a drone, it's different every time. Even you can set up the same drone and it'll always be different. And so I think that that's kind of what you get with that action between that beat that he's playing in his brother's right hand and the drones that they're kicking up. Ultimately, that's the base of the sound. And then melody is, and that's why Bob Scott probably supercharged them a bit because he's such a great melodicist mm-hmm. and a great singer. And so then they do that and he gets super melodic over the top of it. Whereas Peter Gutteridge as a musician is a more of a, another drone guy because you think about Snapper and some of those, and even the great Unwashed tended to be more like a droney string band kind of thing. Uh, what was one of their big songs that Dwayne Eddy? song right oh great song yeah i can't find water i'm trying to remember the titles of that on that ep those are all very kind of droney they sound almost like we're talking about where it just arises the song trundles on for a while has a couple of cool hooks and then kind of fades off uh and whereas when you listen to bats that's which is bob scott's band that's a very organized thing with a lot of harmonies and melodies and arrangements and the drummer tells you when the chorus is coming. There's choruses. There's like <laughs> right. more than a part to the song. So you're kind of layering that over that drone bass that the Kilgore boys are kicking up. Um, and I think that really, that was ultimately the thing that made them be that much better. That they kind of rose above rose above everything else. Yeah, totally. And it, I mean, he, he you can't credit scott enough i mean he the kilgore brothers are kind of i mean obviously robert scott in his own right because the bats have been such an amazing band people know about him too but i think it's easy to forget sometimes how much a part of the clean he is and how important a part he was and the the base the baselines that he plays even just his ability to to sit in the right place is just pretty amazing well he plainly he he stepped right in and he feels that groove you know um and i i guess it's for him it would be room to roam because right. he doesn't necessarily have to hold down the usual stuff for a bass although he can because then it sounds great it's just them droning away but if he feels like it he can go up the neck and play these melodies that he does and that will provide relief from the drone a little bit so that then the drone snaps back in and you're then oh well you know dynamics yeah i mean they have some songs where his like that that at the bottom song which you and I used to play in a, <laughs> the band that we used to play in would cover sometime. That's yeah. just like a base. That's a base song. It's, I mean, it is. Yeah. Well, there's that. It, it gave him another songwriting dimension, right? Like one other person. Yeah, you can kind of tell some of his some of those things were they're bass led 
you know, they obviously they would go in the practice space and somebody's like, oh, oh I got something here. And, right. Exactly. And, uh, yep. Certainly during that period, a lot of those songs sound like that sort of sound, like everybody's just following along. And when everybody has something they're satisfied with it, the song's done. Then they're like, oh, wait, we need lyrics. Right. <laughs> right. And the great thing about them, like like a lot of bands, but them particularly, is like it doesn't sound like even though they they were they're jamming and maybe they chop up part of the jam and say, OK, this is going to be a song. Let's add some lyrics to it, whatever. It still retains the feel of a jam, even as as tight, even as it tightens up. Yeah. Which, you know, pretty amazing. So, yes. So cool. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for everyone to listen for listening to this one and uh, go check out as much clean as you can. If you haven't heard anything beyond this single, there's so many other great records and so many other great uh, Hamish involved records in the mad scene and his solo stuff. And yeah. And, and, the, and the all the best to Hamish's family and everybody. Yeah. Um, he's a great musician. He's obviously going to be missed. Both Mark and I know a lot of people who know him and we're very sad to, to hear about this. So this, this podcast plainly dedicated to him and, and everybody who loved him so. yeah just a huge influence on so many people i mean he lived in america for almost 30 years too and he was involved with so many american musicians as well as still being a big presence in new zealand is just major loss so, so and thanks everybody again for listening and we'll see you next time on the spindle goodbye the spindle is produced by john howard and me mark masters I'm also the audio editor. Our theme song is by the great band Honey Radar. Our podcast is brought to you by Wasteoids, audio and video from Hello Merch. Find more podcasts and videos at wasteoids.com. And please leave a rating and a review of our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.